and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out. In the background, welcome to episode 77 on June 9, 2022. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, where you can donate in both fiat money and cryptocurrency. Also, do check out our social media channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you're using. And uh, also check out our publications page where we have the latest research and more research, of course, coming out all throughout this year. This week, our guest is Nico Yilch, an Austrian finance journalist based in Vienna. He talks all things Bitcoin on his Substack, Fix the Money, and his German language podcast, Was Bitcoin Bringt. You'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, my colleague David Clement, North American Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center, joins us to talk about the consequences of a ban on PFAS chemicals. Also, minimum alcohol pricing clearly doesn't work. We've told you so. And Germany's 9 euro ticket creates problems. So let's get started. First off, Politico's asking, does minimum alcohol pricing work? Uh, for those of you who've listened to this podcast, I think we talked about this before. Minimum alcohol pricing is a policy device in Scotland and Wales, where the government essentially tries to uh, price alcohol at uh, at the, the unit price. So every additional unit adds more uh, cost to, to the tax. And the idea here is, of course, to reduce alcohol consumption and alcohol dependency. And Politico writes, a final report on Scotland's policy of minimum unit pricing for alcohol is out and its findings aren't great news for advocates of the policy. Among people drinking at harmful levels or those with alcohol dependence, there was no clear evidence that the policy, which resulted in an increase in the price of alcohol, reduced alcohol consumption or changed the severity of alcohol dependence among those drinking at harmful levels. The report found there was some evidence that it in fact increased the financial strain for some economically vulnerable groups. So interesting because I think we've written about this dating back to 2017 and 18 when those policies were initially suggested. And, uh, you know, we made all the cases that uh, it's a regressive tax. So that seems to be confirmed now by their report that it wouldn't work because earlier studies on, on behavioral science had shown that, again, proven by this report. Um, will this be scrapped? Uh, I don't think so, because, well, government is very bad at scrapping taxes and uh, too many groups, anti-alcohol groups, have argued in favor of these laws. So I don't think uh, we will be seeing anything being scrapped here. Also, they say not the final judgment. Um, the lead investigator said uh, he's a professor of alcohol policy at Sheffield University. And uh, he says there's no final judgment on whether MUP actually works or not. So uh, we'll see. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think they'll give us a clear message on what exactly it will be in the end. This report was quite surprising that they released it in this sense, uh, essentially proving that their policy uh, is is a complete waste of time and a waste of resources, and unfortunately, uh, an increase in people's taxes at no benefit whatsoever. Not not just that you know we would need to see a benefit. Ultimately, people's alcohol consumption is their own business. Um, but it's interesting to see that not even on their own terms can they succeed. Next up, Germany's nine euro ticket causes problems. So Germany introduced a nine euro ticket um, that's uh, valid all around the country. 
And uh, that's a policy, by the way, that's about to expire. It was uh, uh, to help against uh, increased energy prices. They are still high, so we'll see whether Germany actually will continue this policy. But unfortunately, it's led to quite some chaos. More than 400 overcrowded trains per day uh, since, uh, since June. And 700 daily reports concerning overcrowding. I saw some videos and I thought, incidentally, it was just a sort of a unique uh, incidence that, that one train was overcrowded. But this seems to be a large problem. On top of that, uh, Deutsche Bahn announced that until 2024, it's going to be a bitter pill to swallow for many German travelers as they are using the railway network. Um, because a lot of uh, construction overhaul needs to be done. So, uh, so seems to be not great to use the train right now. And it kind of seems to prove the larger point that um, with all the people saying that we need to phase out aviation, well, we need to first create the infrastructure to make that possible. And that is certainly not being done. Also, because, well, I mean, currently, train passengers are not having a great time. So you can just imagine if you actually shift a larger amount of the population onto trains, what exactly uh, will happen. And we saw that happen on the micro scale now in Germany, because even with a nine euro ticket, uh, that that doesn't mean that, you know, you will get all the Munich Berlin travelers to use the train instead. A lot of people are sort of not sensitive to those prices but if the prices were to increase even more for air travel and then people say well okay i'll use the i'll use the train uh then we'll see the the actual impact and what the countries actually need uh, to make rail only travel happen Next up, David Clement, my colleague, North American Affairs Manager at the Consumer Choice Center, joins us to talk about the consequences of a ban on PFAS chemicals. PFAS is actually a complicated acronym, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it. It's actually a bit too complicated. You can look it up for yourself. Uh, they're controversial, and there have been movies made about this, and a lot of journalists and, uh, and, and policy advisors saying that those groups of chemicals, there's about 5,000 different chemicals, they need all to be banned and that's it's a bit of a unnuanced view and so david is giving us the list of things that um that would essentially disappear if we banned pfas chemicals so listen in so david um we talked about this issue before but for the audience that maybe hears you for the first time here just remind us briefly what is this um campaign that we're doing um on on evidence-based policy making and and what is pfas what's the issue here very br in, in brief terms what are we talking about here yeah so what we're looking at is when when legislators or regulators essentially take a hazard-based approach to regulation rather than evaluating the risk associated with a particular product or chemical. And the reason why this is, this is super important is because if you go the way of, let's say, a heavy-handed ban, uh, a ban because um, there is a potential hazard uh, from a substance um, there are all sorts of externalities that come along with that. And PFAS is really the, the most popular one today because it's in the news. There have been some Hollywood movies about some very egregious cases in the United States. And so European legislators are uh, weighing what to do. Um, but the problem for these chemicals is that um, they have some trivial use uh, where they're put into products that they maybe don't need to be, um, but they are actually incredibly important for some key consumer goods that Europeans rely on every day. 
Um, and so the concern here is if you were to go the way of phasing them out completely or banning them, um, they're a key input in the production of semiconductors, for example. Um, and so how do you how do you make the microchips that go into vehicles or cell phones or the laptop that we're using right now um, without one of the key inputs? Uh, and so it's one of those things where you have to weigh the costs uh, and the benefits. And in my opinion, um, the costs of going with the phase out are almost so large they're hard to quantify. Right. So we, we essentially don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. And what the mm -hmm. bathwater is, is sort of the, 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 the hazardous chemicals that should be phased out. And, uh, and, 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 you know, there's always there's always uh, uh, those that need to be reevaluated. Um, mm -hmm. And w what in this case is is the baby? So what kind of um, what, what products are we looking at here? What would we be throwing out? potentially, uh, if we were to phase out all the PFAS chemicals uh, altogether. Okay, here we go. <laughs> this is, a, long this list. is a, a pretty long list. Um, so anything with a microchip in it, um, there would be serious production delays. Um, the production of solar panels, which are obviously important in terms of the conversation Europe is having uh, about a green revolution, um, it becomes much more difficult to create lithium batteries for electric vehicles, um, it becomes much more difficult or nearly impossible to make a large uh, group of medical devices. Um, so things like filters, vials, caps, tape, um, defibrillators, pacemakers, MRI devices, endoscopes, uh, x-ray films, uh, heart pumps, how we treat burn wounds, it's it's really really quite exhaustive um you move into like the photography photography and printing um space you're looking at inkjet heads toners um photography films into plastics and rubbers that are used in all sorts of different things um and then obviously the automotive industry not only requires chips uh, but use these chemicals to weatherproof or weather resistant, create weather resistant cars, obviously, so that they last longer, they're more durable. Um, there's corrosion protection. Uh, that's just, I would say, maybe 30% off the top of my head of what um, could be at stake here. Um, if If we were to go with a full phase out. And so We've been having conversations with legislators and in the media basically saying, OK, hold on, hold your horses. Let's let's have a serious conversation about um, the cost benefit analysis of this. Can we solve the problem of these chemicals ending up in water systems, which is a problem without running the risk of having serious production problems for all of these products that we use right that, that does make that does make sense david and and uh, briefly while we have the time and sort of what you've seen as reactions because I'm, I'm sure that on some of the things that you communicated on there there's still people who are critics and who think that there should be a phase out has their reaction essentially been that they're willing to accept the collateral damage and they say well i mean if we don't get solar panels if we don't get lithium batteries so what this is better yeah, I, I think it depends. I, I put environmentalists into two groups. Um, one are people who genuinely want better environmental outcomes, but live in the world of reality and understand that 
certain policies have costs and benefits. And for those folks, the response has been, I would say, somewhat positive, um, wanting to search for alternatives if they exist, but understanding that we have to have an adult conversation in regards to um, what the what, what's at risk, what's at stake here. The other group, um, the degrowthers, I call them, the folks who think that economic progress and development and growth is bad for the environment, um, they don't really care. <laughs> they don't care what the economic cost is because they view that that uh, the human race needs to regress uh, in terms of our progress uh, to protect the environment. So for them, the externalities don't matter because the externalities are, in my opinion, part of the goal. Um, but luckily for uh, the folks who just genuinely care, there is there are some good conversations happening um, at the EU level about how do we avoid the disaster that could be um, these production problems. And obviously, there are geopolitical questions at play, the conflict in Ukraine and, and Russia and reliance on Russia for, for gas has highlighted kind of the error of Europe's ways in terms of relying on um, unreliable, unstable countries like Russia for key inputs. And I say that because on the PFAS question, um, it's, it would be China who really fills the void in terms of where these chemicals come from. Uh, microchips are a huge business uh, and part of the economy in Taiwan. What would happen if the Chinese Communist Party were to do what it has flirted with and insinuated it would do, which is invade Taiwan? Well, one, they control then the main production capacity for microchips, and two, they control the input. Um, one of the key inputs for microchips. And so Europe would be left um, wanting to create and basically reshore semiconductors, which has been an initiative pushed forward by several uh, members of European Parliament. Uh, and that has its merits. And, 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 but if that's the goal, is to be able to, take, to, to domestically produce microchips, you also have to take into account one of the key inputs in that production process. And so if you offshore everything to rely on China, well, you could be very well creating a situation um, that you can't unbind yourself from down the road. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of, of members of European Parliament who are very sympathetic to that argument because for so many Europeans, they're living the reality of seeing that, that relationship fall apart with a country like Russia. Um, rightfully so, um, but there are consequences there, and how do you potentially avoid those in the future? Well, you have to take a full view of whatever it is you want to produce domestically. You have to take a full view of what's required to produce it, and these chemicals are required to produce so many of these things. And so, um, yeah, that that argument has also uh, been well received, I would say. Lots to consider here for members of the European Parliament in Brussels. One size does not fit all. You can find the paper on the publications page of consumerchoicecenter.org. Thanks, David. Thank you. And last but not least, my guest this week is Nico Yilch. He's an Austrian finance journalist based in Vienna, and he talks all things Bitcoin on his Substack Fix the Money and his German language podcast Was Bitcoin Bringt. We talked about the price of Bitcoin, uh, the difference between Bitcoin and 
other cryptocurrencies and also the digital euro. What's the ECB getting up to here? So Nico, first of all, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Not all of our listeners will necessarily be on this debate. So first of all, I wanted to have like something quick, something brief to get in here. Um, you are a person who believes very strongly in Bitcoin and makes the distinction between Bitcoin and crypto. So for our audience who are not on top of this, what is your issue with cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin? First of all, hi and thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Um, I love the question because I think it's very important for people to 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 see the differences between Bitcoin and so-called crypto. And yes, of course, I mean Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, so I use crypto as a word for you know everything else. Um, there there is many many different you know um, things you could say about this, but let's just put it from a perspective. And this is this is a somewhat libertarian show, I guess, so, so I can do this. Um, basically, the idea of Bitcoin is to, to have an alternative to central banking. And I've always been somebody who sees, well, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of central banking. Like the whole idea, like going back to you know, the, 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 the Bank of Amsterdam like 400 years ago. So, so I'm, I'm um, and, and of course, since 1913 with the Fed and, and everything else. Um, I think central control doesn't work. I think that that we've come to a to a point where people um, within these institutions are trying to micromanage our lives, and I don't like it. And Bitcoin is the answer to that. And and it's it has been specifically designed as an alternative system um, to and, and a new monetary system, so to say. Um, while crypto, everything that starts with Ethereum and everything else is is just the the hyped up, you know, coked up version of the fiat money system that we already have. It's it's, it's it offers nothing new. It it doesn't add anything. Um, it just it just makes more complicated financial products on top of already complicated financial products. Um, there is no the, most of those other so-called cryptocurrencies are not decentra decentralized, and it's not easy to understand why decentralization is such a big thing. Um, because me, I came from like the gold the gold perspective, you know, and, and before Bitcoin, you know, centralization versus decentralization wasn't really a thing because yet we didn't really like central banks, but, but, um, it wasn't a thing. So, because there was no alternative, no real alternative, you know, the, the only idea was, yeah, maybe they'll go back to the gold standard somehow in some, some capacity or whatever. Um, and, and, and it took me years, like at least seven years to, to take Bitcoin seriously. Um, by which I want to say I didn't, you know, buy in very early. I'm not trying to defend my 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 investment here, and and that's the second thing. Most people think about Bitcoin when they first enter. They think about it as an investment, which is by design. It's it's the idea is that you, you know, you invest in number go up technology, um, but that's only how they how it pulls you in. Um, and then there is a whole new world on the other side. While with with so-called crypto. That's all it is. You know, nobody holds any other cryptocurrency because they want to hold the cryptocurrency. You only speculate in it because you want more euros or dollars. So that's the, the huge difference. And, and it's very important to distinguish. So let's talk about this. You brought up the question of, well, essentially the question of the price. And, and, and that is something that a lot of people uh, discuss usually when they talk about Bitcoin. So what is the price uh, exactly and why does it keep... Uh, uh, fluctuating. I also get the criticism sometimes 
And when I talk about it, and I mentioned the price a bit too much, the uh, uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts tell me that this is not really what it's about. It's sort of what you went, mentioned just now. This is not in, that is not this is not supposed to be part of your investment portfolio. However, what the price constitutes of a currency is essentially also very important because you'll also like you'll eventually trade uh, for products and services in other currencies. So the the value of your currency is important. Now, how do you explain to novices that there is these fluctuations that other like fiat currencies don't experience whatsoever like the dollar doesn't drop in this in the, in the same way that bitcoin does why does this happen if there's so many people who are so enthusiastic about it i'm thinking about how to how to answer this correctly well the easiest answer is yes there's many people but it, it's 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 still a very small number compared to to the total addressable market so um, there isn't so much money in bitcoin right now we're talking about sub sub trillion asset class right now um, and also you know market cap is always a bit tricky it's not it's not that easy to 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 say okay so much money flew into this then there's the other thing that um it doesn't really depend on how many people are in it. Um, it more depends, like the price, more depends on how much capital goes in. So I can, if I'm a billionaire, I can, I can put the capital of a thousand nikos or, or not a thousand, <laughs> uh, more, way more than a thousand nikos into into Bitcoin if I wanted to, and and so so basically that's the the, the main answer would be if you. If you compare it to gold, which is a trend, 10, 11 trillion dollar a market, um, but this, but by the time that it is this big, Bitcoin w would be about uh, a half a million per coin, and then you would expect a bit less volatility. Um, I don't know where the volatility is going to go, but most of the volatility is down to two things. First of all, um, it's still a young asset that is monetizing. And this is, I mean, in financial markets, you're never supposed to say, you know, this time is different and this is new or whatever. But we have never seen um, a new asset being monetized by the market. This is not something, there's no economics textbooks on this at all. I mean, the, the only economic textbooks that are that are talking about um, um, um Goods getting monetized in theory would be would be when you would be those talking about you know gold, so so that's new and and it's, it's digital and has extreme network effects. It's actually useful, especially with the Lightning Network, which would be like a second layer technology that that that, that gives you the possibility to send it in very small amounts, very quickly for no fees or, or almost no fees. Um, so that gives it the that gives you the opportunity to actually use it in in, da in daily life. Which is important, I think, um, but but when it comes to when it comes to the volatility, well, you know, it's psychological. Like people's brains are weird; it re they really are. I mean, Bitcoin has been gone uh, going up from three thousand euros to sixty thousand euros, from three thousand to sixty thousand, and now it's gone down to thirty thousand, and people worry about Bitcoiners. <laughs> You know, um, it's still, I mean, it, when you look at, at, at the really, you know, hot tech stocks, when you look at, at, at Katie Wood's ARK fonds, and when you look at Zoom, we're not using Zoom, right? These stocks have done the full round trip from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, and they're now below the pre-pandemic levels. Bitcoin is still um, 10x, right, from, from pre-pandemic levels, or at least, you know, if you if you don't if you go for, it's it's at least five x if you if you take that uh, 
the number from like really pre-pandemic. So, so basically what you see is you see a monetization, you see adoption of Bitcoin as a store of value, as a denominator even, and, and it takes time and it will, there will always be um, um, bubbles and busts. That's just, you know, how, how this works, but you know, the, the bubbles are not produced by Bitcoin itself. They are produced by the central banks and the fiat monetary system that, that you know, just lives on bubbles and busts. So that's, that's how I would explain it. And, and I know that this is, for, for many people, this is, this is hard to understand or hard to accept even. But in the end, I'm going to say this. People who bought Bitcoin in 2011 are now fabulously rich if they hold on to their coins. But they had no idea. I mean, they had no idea it could work. No, n- n- it, and, and even holding it that long is a huge risk. And it's, it's not, they were not lucky. You know, they were not lucky. And there's not so many anyway. People who bought it in 2017, yeah, I, that was the first time I seriously you know, got into the matter and it was still not convincing to me, also because of the other cryptos, because it was so confusing, because there were so many, so many, and there was nobody telling you uh, Bitcoin, not blockchain, stay away from, from, from that, that didn't happen back then. So I think that, that, that that's also what the Bitcoin community learned from, from 2017 and the ICO boom and whatever. And, and then 2020 came along and then things like, you know, the war happened and, and other stuff like um, inflation, the, the truckers in Canada, um, all that kind of where you see, OK, I don't want to be um, vulnerable to, to, to basically state attack, not on the, on, the, on the network layer, but like on the personal um, level. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still risky. You know, you're still speculating on Bitcoin getting, getting more adoption. Um, but it's the most exciting field in the world, and and it's for me. I I I still like I have this this legacy finance and legacy media background, and I go to the events, and they're like, "Oh, you do Bitcoin? Are interesting?" But they don't really think it's interesting. They don't know what it. Uh, they don't. They have no idea, and they, they see they see like the, the the tip of the iceberg, right? But it's it's grown into a whole thing, and and it has its own. Its own community, its own media, its own language. It's 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 pretty amazing, to be honest. Yeah, I hope to transmit to the listeners as well the, the sort of the excitement of having overcome something when, for the first time, you uh, you send Bitcoin uh, to a friend uh, to reimburse something or to try and to, to pay for something, which is that that it, it feels like. Well, I, I uh, I'm not I'm not using any euros. It's uh, it's like well, I'm an early adopter. Like something is happening here that uh, that otherwise uh, otherwise I, I wouldn't have uh, done earlier. So, um, Nico, I found something that I think you seem to dislike even more than a lot of these <laughs> altcoins, and uh, and that is the attempt <laughs> in the European Union <laughs> to uh, to get on the digital asset uh, train with a digital euro. So first off, briefly, explain for our listeners, what is the European Central Bank trying to do here by creating a digital euro? What's the point? In a sense, they're trying to build an electronic prison. That's the point. Wow. It's a, it's, it's a full fledged, fully fledged out total control surveillance system. That's what this is about. It has nothing to do with economics. There's no economic benefit to it. Um, and and that's what it is, and that's why the Chinese are the ones who are who are leading the charge here, and that's why the Americans are the ones who are saying maybe, maybe not, maybe not, probably not, right? Um, and and 
let me just say, I'm, I'm saying this not because I dislike anybody working at the ECB. I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of the euro, when, like the original idea. The original idea of the euro was a non-state, rules-based, hard money system. And I mean, Bitcoiners get upset when I say, you know, the euro is, was, like, was like Bitcoin's predecessor. But in a way it was. I mean, that, that was the idea. It was just the problem is that with, with, with man-made rules that it didn't work, you know. And Bitcoin might also not work, but with the euro we already know it doesn't work. Um, and, and, and now we have this central bank digital currency monstrosity, um, which is not a good idea. It, for, for many reasons. It's, it's not necessary that in, in the first place. This is about control. This is about the central banks want, not wanting to lose control, either to the private sector, the cryptocurrencies, or to other central banks. Yes, there is an argument to be made that um, in the electronic age, you need some sort of digital cash equivalent. And, and I'm talking about like the actual cash in your pocket, so the dollars and, and the euros the coins and, and the bills. Um, I see that, okay, um, but, but it's, not, it's not something, I don't think it's enough, um, but on the, and it, it is something that Bitcoin does a lot better than any digital euro could. And they already said this. I mean, they are, I, I mean, you can say about many things about central bankers, but they're not liars. They will always tell you what's up, just the, the words they use are very hard to understand for the layman. Um, but but they already said, you know, it's not going to be cash. It's going to be something totally controlled by us. There's not going to be the anonymity of cash. And I think that um, having anonymity in, in transactions, be it values, value transaction or information, is a human right. Um, it's, it's, um, it, it perfectly fits to the idea of, of having some freaking alien AI reading your signal messages. Um, which is also something the EU is trying. So there is no. This is really dangerous, really, really dangerous stuff. Um, and and I'm going as far as to, to 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 tell anybody, you know, if you have programming skills, if you want to work with digital money, you know, go get hired by the ECB. Hire like, like get get a huge salary and then add bucks, as many bucks as you can. Like, like go at it, you know. Um, because this is dangerous. It's extremely dangerous, and it needs to be stopped in the tracks. And this is this is serious stuff. Yeah, I well, that's a good public service announcement there for those interested who are listening right now. Uh, take Nico up on that on that suggestion. That might be an interesting one. I had I had one something more about this topic, Nico, that I wanted you to ask uh, wanted to ask you about. Uh, is this rumor I heard, and you know, this is a, you know whispers here and there that. Uh, it appears that in, in, in the European Union, there's a few people who think a digital euro would be um, a, a great idea because it could control spending habits. So basically, it would say, well, you would only have the, dig the digital euro only buys you meat once a week because meat only once a week is the better thing to do. Now, um, uh, I don't know how real this is. And, you know, nobody's put that on paper. Is Would, would that actually be a a feasible thing to do uh, do you think that's an, a real risk that their spending habits could could be controlled this way absolutely absolutely i mean i mean there these are the same people who are trying to control your spending habits by taxes and by rules anyway and if they if you give them um the, the and i'm not talking about politicians here by the way i'm talking about economists because economists are very dangerous people uh, because they see the world in numbers and models, and they don't care. Most of them don't care about like like peoples or their rights or whatever. They just and they think that 
that they, they get this tool. And yes, that's the idea. And, and, and even on, on a very macroeconomic level, um, when you look at our, our, our um, monetary system, it's designed as an inflationary system. The problem with inflationary systems is, is that they break because they don't really work very well. They just work uh, reasonably well as long as there are some restrictions, you know. Um, and we have le left the land of restriction long long time ago. But the the more granular you can you can you can have control, the longer the system might work. So this is not this is they are not trying to control like our spending habits. So they say like like Nico gets to buy coffee from Monday to to Wednesday, and, and Bill gets to buy coffee from Wednesday to Friday. You know, um, because the coffee prices are too high. Um, but the, the way they and they're not even doing this because they they just want like a Stasi state. I mean, yes, they do that. They wanted to have that too, but um, they're doing it because they 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 see this as the way forward for the monetary system, and it's complete complete uh, uh, insanity. It's abs it's complete insanity, and and that's I mean the the, the Chinese are already already the, integrating this into into the surveillance state. Um, and and who's getting who's getting their their like um, ideas from the Chinese is the German Bundesbank. I mean, it's shocking, and it's nothing that needs to be. Need, there's no. It's not a serious thing. You should you should. It's it it's extremely scary it's because there's no way that a state-run total digital monetary system will not be um, 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 used against you. Absolutely no way. Even if everybody who's including the, uh, is doing this is doing this right now is on your side, there will be other people who are not on your side. And and, and the only way to make because Western Europeans are just naive in 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 a very very dangerous way. And the only way to tell them is, look, do you want to be like what, what if somebody like Orban uses this or Putin? And maybe then they get it. But I don't know. I don't know. It's it's really hard. But. My hope is that 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 they are too late anyway, and and that they really don't stand a chance against an open open source monetary system that anybody in the world can use and work on. Um, it's it's the, the way better solution, and it also saves us money because we don't need. I mean, there's like three thousand five hundred people working at the ECB, and they don't get. I mean, all, their all their job to do is like a two percent so-called price stability. Well, that's not working. <laughs> You know, and, and then, we've noticed. And then you yeah, have like, it's not working. <laughs> and then you have like nineteen national central banks. Did they did they fire anybody? No. <laughs> you know what? What are these people doing anyway? So so, and and do, how many how many bureaucrats do you need to run Bitcoin? Uh, it's, the total sum I think is about zero. So so, so I, I really hope that we that, that that many more people are are getting into this because also from from the perspective of somebody who. Who thinks that you know the state shouldn't be the most important thing in your life? This is the best chance we'll ever get. This is it. This is the this is the one. That's a, that's the one shot. I like the conclusion there, Nico. That's as much time as we have for today. Now, if the li the, the listeners uh, uh, listen to this and said, "Oh, I want to hear more of Nico's rants," where can they find more of you? Well, I'm mostly on Twitter, uh, Nico Yilch, at Nico Yilch. Um, and, and then you already mentioned it. There's my, my English language Substack. It's called fixthemoney.substack.com. I just started it. It's a lot of fun for me to, to you know, tap into that audience um, outside of, 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 of the German-speaking audience. The German-speaking audience, on the other hand, is very active. And it's very nice to, 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 be, to be plugged in there as well. So I get to see both sides. 
Um, well, thank you for having me. It was interesting. I, ho I hope I didn't rant too much, but, you know. Thank you. We'll talk again. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. Do give the Consumer Choice Center a follow on Twitter as well, at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. You've only